You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation, who are traditional owners and custodians of this land upon which we live and work. We pay respect to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to other Indigenous Australians who may be in our audience or listening to this broadcast. We acknowledge the continued resilience of the First Nations people in the ongoing colonisation and settlement and that sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. How's everyone today? Yeah, very good. How are you all? Yeah, we're good. We're down one today. We haven't got Patty here, so it's uh, Alice, Ella and myself, Claudia. Yeah, Paddy isn't in the studio today, so it's just Ella, Claudia and myself. Um, But we've got a really jam-packed show, so what have we got on today? We've got a couple of live interviews. Um, Ella, who are you talking to today? Yeah, so I'm speaking with Dr Claire Land, um, who co-authored Decolonising Solidarity. Um, She's also a former 3CR presenter. Um, And she's going to be speaking to me about an exhibition she's put on with Karen Jackson and Gary Foley, um, A Fight for Survival, uh, which looks at the history of the grassroots fight to save Northland Secondary College. Yeah, that'll be really interesting. Yeah, I think that opened last Saturday. We spoke about it last week. So, yeah, looking forward to hearing more. Yeah, it's just this week. So we'll have to hear about it before the week's up. And I've got an interview at 8 o'clock with Monica Jasmine Caro. She's um, a multi-talented creative artist. Uh, She works in a number of different areas. She's a singer, songwriter, a spoken word poet and an emerging playwright and an actor. So, um, yeah, she does lots of things um, and we've actually played some of her beautiful poetry uh, last year uh, from the Seniors Festival and, uh, yeah, it's truly beautiful. But today she's here to talk about uh, some vocal performances that she's uh, part of and uh, she's going to be performing in the City of Port Phillips First Nations Cultural Festival this weekend, the Yalakut Wollemnaji Festival, and the opening night uh, tomorrow night. So we're going to have a chat to her and hear what's going to be happening. Excellent. That sounds great. And then at eight, uh, yeah, at eight fifteen, we're speaking to Beck Shawwood, who is a comedian at the Melbourne Comedy Festival, and somebody who Paddy actually spoke to last this time last year while she was gearing up for her. Um, 2020 Comedy Fest. So it will be good to catch up with Beck and see what she's excited about for this year and, um, yeah, the Comedy Festival. Oh, excellent. What a fun show we've got this morning, all arts and creativity. Yeah, (laughs) so from 7.40 it's all arts and creativity, I think. But until then, we do have a really interesting discussion 
um, by the Dunbar Law crew, so Erin and Dylan, um, discuss the impact of the COVID-19 restrictions on our right to protest. So we'll be playing audio from that show. Um, and that was with Lucy Haran, I believe. Um, so, yeah, we'll be playing that. So should we just get stuck in? Yeah, let's get I reckon started. it's a pretty busy show. So, uh, yeah, here let's we go. go. And let's listen now to Erin and Dylan from the Done By Law programme discussing the COVID-19 restrictions and our right to protest. We're discussing the impact of COVID-19 restrictions on our right to protest, uh, specifically uh, in Melbourne, where protest and social movements have largely been silenced by Victoria's COVID-19 directions and the police enforcement response to a largely uh, health crisis. We're excited to have uh, Lucy Honan uh, from Refugee Action Collective, or better known as RAC, and Tom Battersby. Uh, he's a Victorian criminal barrister and member of activist legal support uh, also known as MALS, but I'll let them do their own little introductions as well. Okay, um, thanks so much for having me, Dylan and Erin. Yep, I'm a member of the Refugee Action Collective and we've been campaigning for the freedom of refugees um, for a very long time, but in particular lately we've been directing our campaign against the ongoing detention of refugees in the hotels um, initially in Mantra um, in Preston and now in the Park Hotel um, on Swanston Street. So these are people who have been medi back to Australia and then held for more than a year now in ongoing indefinite detention. Thanks so much, Lucy. And Tom? Thanks uh, both uh, Dylan and Erin for having me as well. I'm a member of MALS, where uh, uh, a group in uh, a group of volunteers in Melbourne who um, provide legal observers at protest events. We also make submissions regarding current state of the right to protest uh, in Victoria and write reports after um, police uh, interactions with protesters. I also work as um, a defence lawyer and have done for about five years now. Um, so yeah, thanks for having me on. Great to have you here, um, Lucy and Tom. And um, we might start with you, Lucy, and just uh, if you wouldn't mind giving us a little bit of background into some of the things that have been changing with regards to protest in Victoria. Um, one of the charges in particular is a charge of incitement that I think you've got some insight into. Um, so Chris Breen from Refugee Action Collective was charged with incitement last year. Do you mind telling us a little bit around that charge and what has happened so far? Sure. So last year on April 10th, Friday, April 10th, um, Refugee Action Collective organised a car cavalcade around the Mantra Hotel where um, at that stage more than 60 men were being held, as I said, indefinitely. Um, and we were very concerned for their mental health, partly and in an ongoing sense because refugee detention we know is... Um, is a cause of extremely poor mental health and um, an infringement of people's human rights, but also because the um, COVID pandemic was, you know, well, well and truly in full swing in April last year. We'd just seen the Ruby Princess episode and 
health experts were talking about um, confined places like prisons, detention centres and so on being um, hotspots and, and potentially very, very dangerous places for um, people. And we knew that many of the men who were staying there were um, medically evacuated from offshore detention because of medical vulnerabilities that made them very susceptible to um, the worst effects of COVID if it did infect the hotel. So we organised a car convoy um, around to protest um, around the hotel um, and it was organised so that there would be two people in every car and only two from every household. Um, at that stage, the rules, um, it was the first lockdown and I think if you remember, you know, you could at that stage um, leave the house for one of four reasons and you had to, um, yeah, at, at that stage, um, things like uh, office works and JB Hi-Fi and shopping centres were all still open. Schools were still open. I was still teaching at school, but um, protests, it, police were communicating to us that the protest we had planned outside was not going to be legal. They were going to crack down on it. So that's why we changed it to a car cavalcade. Um, on the morning of the protest, um, police entered Chris Breen's house. So Chris is a member of Refugee Action Collective and his phone number happened to be on the event, the Facebook event, but we did organise it collectively. Um, they entered his house and arrested him and held him for 12 hours. Uh, so he didn't get to go to the protest because he was being charged at Preston Police Station for um, inciting us <laughs> to protest and, and break the health regulations. And when we showed up at the protest, unknowing, unknowingly about Chris's arrest, I had no idea he'd been arrested. We all showed up at the designated time. We were stopped one by one and issued with $1,600 fines each. Um, so it was a huge crackdown on our right to protest, a massive crackdown. Chris has been um, contesting his charge of incitement and we've all been contesting our fines. Um, and on Wednesday this week, it will be the last hearing in a series um, of court appointments um, where they've been arguing it out and we're going to hopefully hear at that point um, or maybe a few days later, um, the magistrate's you know, decision on whether or not that, that um, the police's move to charge him with incitement holds. Can I ask, in terms of the fines that you've received, Lucy, and the other RAC members, have you had any successes with withdrawing those? Are they still in the process of review? No. Um, so we applied for, you know, the internal review that police can do themselves and they decided that no, <laughs> there was nothing wrong with them finding us, which we were unsurprised by. Um, and, you know, I guess they had the opportunity um, to withdraw them. They haven't. So we're all going to end up in court. Um, challenging those fines. There's $50,000 worth of fines altogether that we'll be contesting. Oh. Yeah. So although the the charges took place last year, there's still such a long process uh, to come. Um, Tom, I might ask you a little bit more about what you know around the use of incitement and its history. Yeah. Um... From what I understand, um, from my personal knowledge, it's a fairly recent um, thing that Victoria Police have been doing, um, as well as um, Chris Breen's charge. Uh, there's also um, someone, Zoe Bueller, who was charged 
last year, I think in during the second lockdown, and she was um, holding a sort of anti, I think trying to organize an anti-lockdown rally, but um, it was widely publicized because she had footage of, of police entering her home, seizing her computer. Um, and at the time, I think she was pregnant. So that sort of brought um, the use of the charge into further public consciousness. But um, Mal's uh, is extremely concerned about the use of, of that charge. It's a very broad uh, charge uh, and can be used, in, one can imagine a whole um, host of different situations in which it might be employed by police, but certainly in the context of um, organising protest events, it really appears that Victoria Police have identified this charge as a mechanism to sort of um, have a, a chilling effect on organisers uh, and uh, really get people to think hard about creating a Facebook page or an event um, because they they make themselves liable as soon as they click that button to publish to um, have the police come round to their house with a warrant, um, arrest them and detain them for extended periods. And certainly we have yeah very significant concerns about the use of, of that charge um, and the way in which Victoria Police have employed it recently um, over the past um, 18 months or so. Yeah, to me, um, that, that Chris was in custody for 12 hours, quite extraordinary, Lucy and Tom. Tom, can you talk through a little bit around some of the potential consequences of a charge like incitement? And also, as you say, it's a very broad charge. So if you could spell out a bit more of the doctrine, um, I'm a bit of a nerd, so I find that interesting. And hopefully some of our listeners, listeners will as well, particularly in regards to how it might um, potentially uh, create conflict, I suppose, for things like civil and political rights. Yeah. Absolutely. So um, it's uh, really broad looking at the elements of the charge. You can really imagine all sorts of situations where it might be proven. So there's two elements. Um, the first being that the accused incited a person, another person to commit an offence and that the accused person intended that the offence be committed. So most often uh, you see this um, charge of incitement being used in conjunction to very serious offences such as, as murder, where someone's gone off to... Um, try and commission another person to um, basically conduct a hit or something like that. So really very different uh, criminal activity to, to organising uh, an event to express sort of care and concern for more vulnerable members of the community. The penalty for the offence um, is often tied to the alleged uh, offence which is being incited. So um, it's difficult. I wasn't able to figure out, for example, what the maximum penalty someone like um, Chris Breen would be facing. I'm not sure how that charge has been put or how it's been laid by Victoria Police. But even the fact of, of it being available to police means, as you noted, Aaron, not just that he, he was able to be held uh, for 12 hours on that day, but um, bail conditions can also follow. So once someone's been charged with incitement, the police can, of course, bail them to a court date with conditions that may well um, prevent them from organising or communicating with other members of a particular um, group. Um, so beyond the charge itself, um, the manner in which um, it can be used or abused by, by police sort of has uh, further chilling effects on, on that um, organisation um amongst community groups so it seems to be that um the outcome of of chris's uh charge is, could potentially set a very dangerous precedent for 
other protest actions and organizers. Um, my, my next question is for, for Lucy and how you've viewed uh, protests and social movements and the police response over the last year. Has it evolved much or how has it changed since uh, the car convoy that was organized in, in April? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I think we saw even before COVID a real ramping up of police militarisation at protests in Victoria um, and, and not, I mean, police, you know, they've got their public order response teams and their robo outfits and their horses and so on. And they have been given an enormous amount of money specifically for, you know, handling public gatherings and large groups of people and activists um, in Melbourne, people who've been organising rallies definitely have been noticing and talking about that. Not just police though. I mean, we saw in response to the bushfires um, just before, you know, COVID. So when we were coming back from the um, summer holidays of that awful, awful summer, um, you know, there was a rally organised in response to the do nothing attitude to climate. Um, and we had our Premier, Daniel Andrews, discouraging people from going to that protest um, on the very spurious basis that it would be um, tying up emergency services people. So, um, you know, we've, we saw pre-pandemic a very, um, like a, a very unwelcoming and, and increasingly hostile attitude towards protest in Melbourne. But um, from the pandemic onwards, that we'd, it has been... Um, vicious and um, disproportionate and you know a real opportunity I think for police to to seize their <laughs> seize their moment and squash whatever um, we could do so we spent months and months you know um, jumping through hoops whenever whenever it was possible obviously the chilling effect was pretty immediate for rack fifty thousand dollars worth of fines and a, and a charge of incitement immediately concerned us in a really big way about um, organizing future protests but I think we were also more concerned about what what would happen to refugees the left um, democratic rights if we collapsed under that pressure as well so um, we pushed back. Um, in, in, you know, strategic ways. So when we were allowed to have groups of five or groups of 10 meeting outside, we organised protests with the support of um, Melbourne Activist Legal Services and other, other groups to try and, you know, push back against it. So we'd have groups of five rotating through and relaying around. But we saw incredible police harassment at those events too. You know, they'd be coming around insisting that people stood, you know, five metres to the left or 10 metres down the road. You know, anyone who was wearing a vest was counted as part of the five, even though they were trying to keep a, a safe distance between people and so on. Um, but we didn't stop. And I think that there has been increasingly a, a, an awareness, I think, that, you know, we can't shut down protest indefinitely. We had a really vibrant climate movement going on all around the globe and in this country before the pandemic that quite desperately needs to get on its feet again. Um, and, you know, International Women's Day, for example, um, earlier last week, you know, they were they were under pressure too. Their police liaisons had been speaking to police and police were saying to them, you know, if it's more than 100, we're going to start arresting people. I mean, that's absurd. And, it, and it's untenable in a situation where people desperately need to fight for the rights of women in this country. 
and they broke through it. And I think that's the important thing is that actually we have been breaking through um, that police intimidation so that, you know, caps on numbers of people at protests where there is absolutely no sane health grounds to have those caps because you've got more than many, many, many times more that num more than that number of people protesting, gathering together to watch the tennis or go to work or go to school. You know, it's absurd and untenable. So we've been pushing back against that. And I think we're um, rebuilding our confidence, I think, to, um, to, to organise protests and hold our ground. Thanks, Lucy. It's been um, it's been really inspiring to watch the creative ways that people have been coming up um, in order to protest and often um, really trying hard to do that in a way that is um, minimising public health risks as well. Um, there's been a lot of changes, obviously, in the last 12 months, right, and largely because of these public health restrictions that we've had to deal with. Would you mind, I mean, either of you are welcome to answer this. You probably have some good insights, Tom, from your Mel's experience just sort of discussing some of these developments in the policing of protest, what types of things are you seeing? Um, what kind of tactics are you seeing in policing that people should be aware of or concerned about? And also um, what your thoughts are on the new guidelines around having public events in Melbourne and how that might apply to protests? There's a few issues there, but um, certainly what we've seen at Mel's is I think, um, as Lucy identified, this um, attitude whereby protest has been increasingly policed or criminalised, certainly in the past uh, two years or so. Um, so there hasn't been recognition um, that protest is a legitimate form of political expression. Um, it's very difficult to understand how Victoria Police sees its role in terms of interacting with, with people, um, expressing their right to peaceful assembly and, you know, those instances of harassment where you see police um, at protest events creating conflicts regarding arbitrary directions to stand five metres to the left or, or something. It's very hard to understand how exactly they they view their role at those events. Um, one thing that Mel's um, has seen recently, uh, you don't really get you can't really peer behind the curtain and sort of understand what Victoria Police Command are thinking, but it, I think it was a bit revealing. Um, they made a submission um, to the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security uh, recently, um, and where ASIO, uh, the Federal Security Agency, found that left-wing extremism is currently not prominent in Australia, which sort of accords with um, the number of, of violence incidents associated with left left-wing activism. Victoria Police had a very different view and they seemed to think that left-wing uh, left activists and protest events were somehow fermenting um, potentially uh, violent uh, conflicts or, or something like that. And, and in their submission, they stated the emerging threat of right-wing forms of violent, violent extremism and its interplay with left-wing forms demonstrate that the threat of extremist movements and individuals is highly dynamic uh, and there's just no basis in reality for, for the view that there's any um, current threat posed by left-wing groups, particularly people um, like RAC who are expressing care for, for vulnerable um, asylum seekers being held uh, in detention. And Victoria Police went on to say, their willingness to flout government restrictions for the greater good has already been evident in Victoria with protest activity occurring despite warnings that it represented a breach uh, of, of emergency COVID restrictions and that participants would be fined. 
So uh, Victoria Police seem to have a view somewhere internally that um, these protest events that have taken place during COVID um, suggest uh, some sort of dark underbelly of, of violent left-wing extremism, which it, it, personally I would say is a fairly paranoid and, and um, fantastical view of, of the current situation. But I think that's it's revealing that um, you sort of have, have this in an official document um, submitted by Victoria Police to a parliamentary committee. Um, so I don't know. Uh, to me, that sort of explains the overzealousness um, in terms of, of how protest has been policed over over the um, recent period. Uh, that's a really astonishing claim to make. So there seems to be almost uh, a correlation between civil disobedience and domestic terrorism. That, that appears to be the link that they're making. And um, I'm not sure what evidence they use to make that link, but, uh, but it's not surprising. And it's, I think it's revealing because anyone who's been to a protest event, and I've certainly been um, present at a, as a legal observer at uh, a few events over the past couple of years, it certainly has been, as Lucy noted, a sort of not quite militarization, but a, sort of certainly a beefed up political, uh, beefed up police presence, um, you know, um, with their riot gear and more of the public order response team present and, and so on. This is really fascinating to, to learn about considering that this is occurring with a government that is largely considered to be, quote, in a left, centre-left government. And um, I think it's really fascinating as well to, to hear from other people in social movements and the left generally that they haven't wanted to attend or are still criti criticising protest movements. And it would be interesting to hear from both of you about how you view protesting uh, in, in terms of the public health risk. Yeah. I mean, I guess from our point of view, the, um, like, for the refugee issue, the right to protest was about the right to defend people's health, um, you know, not just the refugees in detention, but, you know, the, the consequences for that. I mean, we saw what happened in aged care in Victoria, um, in, pe in people living in close quarters, residential areas where you have people coming in and out, as we did you know, that's that's exactly the situation um, for refugees in those hotels and there have been too many close calls for them. I mean, the some of the um, people who, the, the same security company who um, was, you know, the, a lot of the um, breaches of COVID into, you know, the security company, that was the same security company that was tasked with, um, you know, the um, work at Mantra. Um, a couple of a couple of weeks ago when we had our third lockdown here in Victoria there was a terrible scare at the Park Hotel because a close contact of one of the security guards there was testing positive to um, to COVID so you know the the possibility of that you know becoming a very dire um, public health consequence it was not remote at all and still is not remote at all um, you know, the, the the idea that protesting was the problem when we're, you know, outside or in the case of the um, the car convoy in our cars, 
it was preposterous. It really was preposterous. But I think the thing that, and the reason that, you know, Andrews obviously has had many opportunities to say to the police back off over this, you know, call off the dogs. This is ridiculous. And, you know, we can, we've seen over the last couple of months, maybe an attempt to do that um, with that memo. I don't, I don't know if you guys remember it, but there was a memo circulated to the police about, you know, dropping the fines, retreating from the fines, and then, you know, actually, no, the memo was misunderstood. It wasn't, it wasn't that at all. Um, so, but I think what's going on is that in Victoria, we have seen the public health response be overwhelmingly about um, movement of people and minimising the movement of people and, and, and about lockdowns, where as you know, for example, in New South Wales and what public health officials have been calling for is about funding and sorting out the problems in DHHS, which are obviously extreme. <laughs> the problems there, you know, that precipitated the um, the lock-in of the pub uh, public housing towers, for example, extraordinary problems where there's just no communication, um, the, um, the opportunities to avoid disaster there were neglected, ignored, you know, not attended to at whatsoever. Um, contact tracing, not a thing that Victoria has any confidence and it seems the Premier hasn't had any confidence in it and that's why they reached for the last lockdown. So I think what you've got going on in Victoria is um, an over-reliance and a build-up of police and police powers over many years and a degrading of health, a degrading of um, public health in particular, to the point that when we reach the pandemic, we've got this beefed up and, um, you know, very, very well-resourced police team that can institute a ring of steel around the city in an instant, that can crack down on protesters in an instant, that feels very confident to go into people's houses and, you know, loiter around poor communities and pick people up off the streets if they think they're outside of their five kilometre zone or whatever it is, that's able to be instituted within an instant. But what couldn't be instituted were the actual public health, um, you know, responses that we needed, interpreters to explain the quarantine directions, you know, GP support so that, you know, the right people were contacted at the right time, contact tracing in schools. I could go on, but I, I do think that that's a huge part of the story of why Andrews has not called off the dogs decisively um, with the police. Thanks so much, Lucy. Uh, look, there's so many things in this that I could, I could happily talk to you guys about for another half an hour or even an hour, but we are running out of time, so it might be time to try and wind it up a little bit. But there's two key themes that have been coming out pretty consistently. One is the, the level of policing that's going on, and the second is these changes that have been occurring. Um, the charge of incitement, I think it's important to point out for listeners as well, so that it's going to be incitement to a particular crime, and that crime, I'm assuming, I don't know, but I'm assuming that that crime, in inverted commas, is uh, encouraging people to breach the public health directions, which come under the Public Health Act um, and were initiated um, last year, as we're all, all well aware in Melbourne. Uh, and the other is this sort of generalised policing of protest, right, so that if you are attending a protest, um, we have got a, a highly militarised police force in Victoria. We've had the port since about 2011 for nearly every protest. It's often an intimidating environment. Um, there, there is a sense that if you're attending a protest that you should feel in some way afraid or somehow criminalised. 
Um, so if you want to perhaps both just wrap up with your thoughts around um, what this means for protest in Victoria and uh, the ways that we should conduct our protest or how we should interact with these laws and or police, I think that would be a great way to finish up our program. Thank you. Really, um, we've really just scratched the surface. Um, I think I'd probably, I'd, I'd love to finish up by talking about the recent um, guidelines, the public events framework that is, has come out from the Victorian government on March 1st. And we see this as a fairly positive recognition from the Andrews government about the right to protest. They describe the uh, that it's essential to a democratic society and the freedom of peaceful assembly. They refer to the Charter of um, Victorian Charter of Human Rights and Responsibilities. So we're really uh, pleased that that has come out. We're certainly concerned about the application process. If you want to hold an event where there are more than 5,000 people um, attending, you have to submit an application eight weeks uh, beforehand, which um, is going to be fairly difficult for some groups and certainly some events, you, you won't have eight weeks notice. For example, the Women's March for Justice, this, this event didn't have the basis to be held eight weeks ago. So it's certainly unrealistic there. But really what we're much more concerned about is, is the potential that protest becomes a, a, a activity that you need to seek a permit for. And that would really be just a completely unacceptable situation. Certainly, as Lucy noted, a lot of the organisers have taken great steps um, to ensure that protests have been COVID safe. And certainly while we're living in a pandemic, um, it's acceptable to have a permit system. It makes sense. And a lot of the organizers, Refugee Act, uh, Action Collective and, and Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance have been doing um, all of the steps that Victorian government is asking protesters to do now already prior to the system existing. Um, so uh, certainly while it's a positive thing to have the right to protest recognized by the Andrews government, um, once we're on the other side of this COVID thing, um, it's going to be a real struggle to make sure that, that people don't have to seek permission to, to, to protest. It's something that's an inherent right that you have and, and people should be able to assemble peacefully to express their political views without permission from, from the government of the day. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Lucy. Um, and thank you to our listeners. And we will see you in a month's time on Done By Law. And that report there was from Erin and Dylan featuring Lucy Honan from the Refugee Action Collective and Tom Battersby from Males, which is Melbourne Activist Legal Support, about some important changes um, onto our right to protest. And so you can catch the Dunbar Law every Tuesday from 6pm here at 3CR and stay tuned for updates on how these changes may affect communities' right to hold power to account, which is the point of why we go out and protest anyway. So thank you to Erin and Dylan for that. Um, and I think we learned a lot here on Wednesday Breakfast just listening to that one too. So now we're going to take a listen to Thelma Plum with How Much Does Your Love Cost?
And that was Thelma Plum with How Much Does Your Love Cost? On at the Northern College of the Arts and Technology this week, there's a special exhibition, a Fight for Survival, which looks at the history of the grassroots fight to save Northland Secondary College uh, after the state government closed it in 1992. So two Aboriginal students lodged a complaint with the Equal Opportunity Board, arguing this decision was an act of systemic racism and after a three-year battle ending in the Supreme Court, the school was reopened. So the exhibition has been more organised by Karen Jackson, Professor Gary, Fo- Gary Foley, excuse me, um, who was part of the Northern Community Mob leading the fight at the time, and Dr Claire Land, who joins us this morning. Uh, good morning and welcome to Wednesday Breakfast, Claire. Hi, thanks for having me. Now, could I get you to start off by telling us a bit more about Northland Secondary College? Um, so why was it so important to the community at the time and what set it apart from other schools? Yeah, it was um, formerly known as Preston East Tech School and changed to Northland Secondary College in 1991, just a year before it closed. So it was a, a state school with a focus on tech, um, was in an area, Preston East, of working class and um, multicultural communities and it was a very, very progressive school with a, a principal called Bill Maxwell who would collect staff who were able to bring out 
um, success and talent amongst students from all different backgrounds. So the key thing he did was he would replace staff if they couldn't um, engage the students rather than just um, letting go of the students. So a lot of students sort of ended up there as their last um, option um, and then found, uh, like having not had a great time at other schools and then found amazing success there. And that included Aboriginal students who often and always pretty much experienced racism from students and staff at other schools. And um, there were two Koori educators at the school for an important um, period leading up to the announcement of its closure. That was Deirdre Bucks and Lynn Thorpe. And together with um, some a great cohort of, of other teachers, non-Aboriginal teachers, they built up a whole school culture which included Aboriginal people on the school council, um, community people coming in as, as artists and creatives to work with the students and um, so much so that it was named in the 1991 report of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody as a school that was a shining example of what um, we needed. So that's what set it apart and it was just, that's why there was just complete immediate and total outrage when it was announced the closure as part of a kind of austerity and cost-cutting drive by Kenneth when he came in in, in 92. And, yeah, as part of this battle to have it reopened, there were two students from the school who argued systemic racism. Um, I imagine yes. this must have been pretty unusual at the time. I think it was pretty rare to successfully argue some pretty direct racism, let alone systemic racism. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's exactly right. And that's what still makes it such a remarkable victory. It's, it's still um, very, very difficult to get um, indirect or systemic racism um, proven, as you're saying, and... Um, and also to get such a complete remedy from the courts, as in they ordered for the school to be re- uh, uh, reopened. Um, so that was a pretty remarkable thing. Yeah, absolutely. And um, A Fight for Survival, the exhibition you're putting on with Gary Foley and Karen Jackson remembers this story. Um, how did the exhibition come about? Uh, as you mentioned in your intro, Foley um, was a parent of, of a kid at the school at the time, Bruce Foley, and um, so he was one of the, the community members who would absolutely determine that the school couldn't close. He knew he, his kid couldn't couldn't go anywhere else, and um, so he very much instigated that he want, wanted the story told after all this time, and so over the last few years... Um, I've been working with him through Mundani Valley Academic Unit, where Karen Jackson is the director, um, to pull together um, people who were involved at the time who also wanted the story to be told. And, and everybody did want the story told. Um, it was important that this not get lost to history. Um, and I guess there was a sense of, I guess, sufficient time had passed that people were willing to revisit such a painful time. Um, so Lynn Thorpe, um, in particular, one of the Koori educators, um, has has pulled together the community again, um, along with um, Jill Morgan, who was a teacher at Preston East Tech at the time, and others. And Deirdre Bucks, the other key educator, has been part of it as well. We've met at her house. She's um, not able to um, work on the project um, because she's now getting getting older, but um, she's she's been very much part of guiding um, what would happen. 
Yeah, it must be a, a really strange experience for people coming back and remembering because um, even though it was um, a success in the end, like you said, it could um, bring up a lot of painful memories as well. Um, what kind of Yeah, I think that, that, yeah, the struggle, because it went on for so long, it was like two and a half years, there was a rebel school that was run um, by Deirdre Bucks and, and volunteer teachers um, for kids so that they could remain at school. And it was very, very taxing. They had no income, no salary, no materials, pens, paper, all that. That was all had to be um, gained by donation. And um, there was a, the legal battle went on and on. There were appeal after appeal by the government. Um, school didn't, uh, the students didn't get legal aid. Unfortunately, that was withheld from them. And it was just everything was hard. Um, and the thing is that because the um, school took so long, to be reopened, then some of the kids who had been older at the time, in say year 9, 10, 11, they were the most um, fragile in terms of their connection with school going forward. So they, a lot of them did drop out. Some of them are no longer with us. And um, so it's, it's, it's got a bittersweet aspect to it as a victory. Um, the, the younger brothers and sisters were able to then return to the school when it reopened, but it's um, it's a case of race discrimination against a whole group of students, um, and you know their, their lives bear the marks of that. Yeah, I read some pretty shocking statistics. Correct me if I'm wrong, but something like 400 students were enrolled previously, and then in the year after it closed, only 100 were still enrolled in schools. So I guess it shows. Yeah, that's right. And and for Aboriginal children, 90% of them. Um, 90% of the Aboriginal children at the school were, were not enrolled elsewhere other than the rebel school. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was very severe. It was predictable. It was it was known this would happen. Um, there was no other place for the kids to go, and, and that's why um, there was such strength in the fight um, and why it was such a hard time. Yeah. And um, this exhibition opened on the weekend. Um, how did the opening ceremony go? Oh, the opening was a beautiful time. Um, yeah, it was a bit of a reunion. There were pe- people um, hadn't been back to that school for, you know, for 20 years and um, hadn't seen each other. The school's changed a lot. It's been renovated. Um, it had been neglected by governments up until um, that time of closure. So there had been maintenance issues for a long time. And so, yeah, it was um, it was it was a, a case of revisiting um seeing your favourite old teachers again and um, and seeing each other and, and, and remembering those who've now passed as well. Um, yeah. And um, what can visitors to the exhibition expect? What kind of resources do you have there? Uh, the exhibition has artworks made by former students and a lot of photos. Of, uh, we found, found that there was the teachers who often had collections of photos from the school and from camps and from performances and all the beautiful things that um, the school used to do and so there's there's news clippings as well Gary Foley's an historian now he had kept all of his um he kept all of his papers from the time so original letters um you know court transcript news letters he's got all of that so a few of those things are in there too um the story will next be told in the form of a cabaret coming up in May as part of the Urimboy Festival and then there will be a, a an extended exhibition now that everyone's finding out about the project who we haven't 
might not have been able to contact so far. Um, more people want to add their story, and so we will have a second stage exhibition later in the year at Melbourne Museum. Um, and it, eventually there will be a, a definitive and detailed history book um, with all the all the events that did take place over that time and, and um, revealing what the state did, the extent the state went to to defeat these children. Yeah, I imagine they're not um, keen to revisit them, revisit the story themselves. I think they fought pretty hard <laughs> to uh, keep it stopped. Yes, I mean, it's interesting. Um, something I've learnt from Foley, I was a um, student alongside him at Melbourne Uni. He was a mature age student and so I was learning a lot from him as we both went through. And he did say that his... Um, you know, he's been involved in a lot of political activism. However, the way that this, those are then written by academic historians later um, often just does not ring true at all to what happened at the time. So he was very keen that the story is told. And there are a couple of books about um, the Kennett Times already, and there's a memoir by the Education Minister. And the way they represent the story or just completely... Um, exclude the story is really striking. It is just written out of history or just completely dismissed as a kind of joke or something. And it's, um, it's, it, it really shows the need for, um, for people to be able to tell their own side of the story. Yeah, absolutely. It's pretty unbelievable how history can be rewritten. Yep. And um, what's Northland Secondary College like today, or um, uh, Northland College of Arts and Technology is its current name? Yeah, it, it has changed a bit in um, in about 2007, I think it was, changed to just year 10 to 12 college, rather than being 7 through 12. It does have um, adult education as well, so it, it's pretty unique actually still in the in the education system in Victoria. It specialises in the arts and technology. It's completely renovated. It's got a lot of pretty amazing equipment, especially around the performing arts, visual arts and technology. And yeah, it's just a, it's still a school of excellence and a school of um, community inclusion. It, it doesn't have a lot of Aboriginal children there now. Um, there's probably a range of reasons for that. But um, the, the, the principal who was there during the struggle is still there. So there's a, and there's even a, quite a few teachers still there. So it's a pretty amazing, wow. um, amazing thing that that people have built through their whole life. That's cool. Cool. Yeah. All right. And um, yeah, the exhibition's on till the end of the week. How can people get along and see it? You can actually go any time during school hours. And at Northland, that's nine till five. So in NCAT, that's nine till five. So you just show up, you sign in at the school and you'll get shown to the to the exhibition. Um, it is open on Saturday 2 till 5 and it is actually, because the school is enjoying it, the students and teachers are enjoying it, they're actually offered that we can keep it open a couple of extra days next week. So there's your scoop. It's being extended through till at least Tuesday next week as well. Ah, excellent. All right, I'm looking forward to getting along to it. Thanks yeah, you've got to get along. <laughs> yeah, you've got to get along as a community radio person. And um, 3CR did cover the story quite a lot. We've actually got some recordings um, that were put on air at the time, like the, the victory speeches, for instance, were recorded by 3CR and in 3CR's archive. So it's a really gorgeous connection. Um, so I'm sure you'd love it. Excellent. And yeah, I'm looking forward to the cabaret. I'll keep my eyes out. <laughs> Yeah, you've got to book because tickets are already on sale. 
Oh, perfect. I'll get in quick. Yeah, Where can absolutely. we book tickets? Yurumboy Festival website. Wonderful. We'll check so it out. We've got Instagram and Facebook for the project so that you can find it through there. Great. All right. Thanks Alrighty. so much for joining us, Claire. Okay. Bye. Bye. That was Dr. Claire Land, co-author of Decolonizing Solidarity and former 3CR presenter, speaking to us about the exhibition A Fight for Survival uh, on at the Northern College of Arts and Technology this week. And now we're going to listen to Dreaming Now with Survive. We've been here since the beginning Descended from sacred obligations We still stand by those As we dream in the now Born into it, a slope in slippery Check history, man, it's been no mystery Stolen, removed, indigenous liberties Place power before understanding and humility On with artillery's hostilities Prayed upon to the cases Now realizing they're the wrong Created songs with average Rise celebrating strong Calibrating eminent and sacred And you deep In the lands, wisdom we do belong These words are seeds that these can never take from Ow, mother's womb prison Always beyond apocalypse is wrong So don't extinction Roman restriction Trapped in missions The colonial system Assimilation prescription Spirit never trapped We always hear glisten Ancestors wisdom forevermore given yo Yes, we will always survive. No matter what they do, no, we never gon' die. Yes, we will always survive. 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 No matter what they do, no, we never gon' die. Yes, we will always survive. Yes, we will always survive. 4788, there was nothing but black. There was magic manifested in stacks. To the gun barrel, tried to bring on genocidal collapse. But now, 200 plus seasons have elapsed. Conquest didn't work, caught up in new tracks. Packed with a pain of generations impact. Put it back to these constant hideous attacks. But yet we stand strong, inspired of all of that. Quicksand snakes and spiders, yes, still surviving. Mother Palatine's room, mass shots colliding. The richer we got up through the sound of that silence. Salam shots as I break, we get to the perspiring. Flood that the color through the violence, the imbalance. Every family in you was a black uprising. It's a black uprising. Yeah, we always survive here. Yes, we will always survive. No matter what they do, then we never gon' die. Yes, we will always survive. 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 No matter what they do, then we never gon' die. Yes, we will always survive. Yes, we will always survive. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. If the 
the sun don't come out in the sky if the bluebirds stop singing my own oh my i'm not lying you and me honey in a home we got all we ever need if the brightest diamonds lose their shine and the stars all burn out And my ears and my smile ain't got nothing but you I've got the whole wide world inside this place You and I got a love to last the ages If the six is turned Stood still till the end of time. I'm in heaven. Ooh, I'm in heaven. I've got the whole wide world inside this place. You and I've got love to last the ages. And that was Bluebird by T.J. Patrick. Next, we have a wonderful guest on uh, the line, Monica Jasmine Caro. And listeners might be familiar with her work because we've uh, played some of her spoken word pieces on this show before. Monica is a Gunai and Gunditjmara woman, a spoken word artist, singer-songwriter, actor and emerging playwright. She's based in Nam. 
And this Thursday, tomorrow night, she's performing in the opening night event of the Yalakut Willem Naji Festival in St Kilda. The event's called Garial, which means Summer Rains. Welcome, Monica. Hello, hello. Good morning to you. Good morning. How, how are you going? Yeah, we're, we're going well here. Uh, how are you? Yeah, I'm, I'm doing good, thank you. Can you tell us about this event that's going to take place um, on Thursday night for the Yalakut Willem Naji Festival, uh, the First Peoples Art and Cultural Festival of Port Phillip? Yeah, so it's going to be a really special night at the Nemo uh, Music Hall in St Kilda and we are going to be performing with um, Ensemble Dutala, which is um, a string quartet. And so it will be myself, uh, Alara Briggs-Patterson, um, Bumpy, um, Amaya Hodge, um, and we'll be doing a beautiful collaboration with the Ensemble Dutala, um, which is representing the Boronan Dolphin, and which is a very uh, specific and unique uh, species of, of ancient dolphin um, that is found in the Port Phillip Bay and also the Gippsland Lakes. So we're, we're doing a, um, a very special collaborative piece that is inspired by um, by the Boronan dolphin and honouring um, the matriarchal clans that, uh, that the Boronan dolphins actually abide by. So it's going to be very exciting. And so, yeah, there'll be... Um, yeah, myself performing and, um, yeah, a lot of other First Nations artists and it's going to be yeah, a really um, beautiful evening, um, yeah, on tomorrow night, which is going to be great. And you mentioned the themes uh, for the evening. I believe mm-hmm. the six seasons of the Boomerang uh, are the central theme for the event. Yeah, yeah. Can you talk a little bit? about those uh, seasons and um, how that's worked its way into the material you're presenting? Yeah, right. Um, So, um, yeah, the six seasons of the Boomerang, which I'm still learning about, um, this has been, I guess, uh, curated by Alara and wanting to actually honour the three seasons of country, which um, isn't often spoken about um, or acknowledged. And this is a great opportunity to um, look at all the different seasons on country um, because we still are um, practising, the Boomerang peoples are still practising their cultures on country. So it's really important for us to uh, represent and acknowledge the different types of seasons in accordance to country and peoples. Uh, so, yeah, learning about the Bo- the Burunan dolphin has been a very interesting process for me because I grew up in Gippsland and um, I never knew about um, the Burunan dolphin and how um, they live in the Gippsland Lakes, but when they live in the Gippsland Lakes, um, it's mainly, um, it's all matriarchal, all-female um, pots. Um, and there's other um, other group groupings around Gippsland Lakes, but it's mainly the females that gather around Gippsland Lakes, and then they go back into the Port um, Port Phillip Bay. And yeah, it's very very interesting um, um, how they've they've survived and 
they're really under threat at the moment, um, which is something, you know, talking about our seasons and how we relate to our environment, how we relate to our uh, wildlife. Um, so the Burundi dolphin is actually under threat at the moment because of um, the pollution that's going into the Gippsland Lakes from irrigation and and um, yeah other other um, environmental factors that are affecting the Burundi dolphin. So so yeah, talking about um, the different seasons is also um, a way to to place us. Um, in, in context of what is actually going on, that we do have these intrinsic links to country, and and in this 21st century, we are actually, um, you know, we need to come back to to uh, the the traditional ways because country is suffering at the moment. Um, so yeah, um, I'm still learning on this on this journey. I've just come come on board as um, as an artist myself and. Um, yeah, it's been really, really awesome to, to learn and to collaborate with um, the Ensemble Du Tower and um, the other amazing artists like Alice Sky, Bumpy and uh, Maya Hodge and, of course, Alara as well. So. Yeah, and you also mentioned the cycles around matriarchy and birth in relation to the dolphin. Uh, is that theme extended throughout the work more broadly, or is it primarily in relation to the uh, endangered dolphins? Uh, really, we um, we have been looking into, I guess, the language and the sounds of of the Burundi dolphin, in which we've actually been um, cross-referencing with um, uh, Alara's sister's thesis, um, which she did about the Burundi dolphin. So, all the scientific um, studies. <clears throat> and the environmental biology, marine biology done about um, these animals and um, really how they interact and, and how their kinship interactions is very, very similar to how us humans interact with our um, kinship groups and our families. So uh, we will be portraying, obviously, um, the emotion of, of the Boronan, but we will also be... Um, we will be singing about their, you know, the, the playfulness as well, and the and the connectedness and the journey that they're going through at the moment um, with living in, I guess, um, a time where their environment is um, is quite at, at threat, you know, and is quite detrimental um, to their future ways of living. Um, so we will be actually um, kind of doing um, a holistic, a holistic um, betrayal of, of these um, of these beings. Um, we'll have some of their their song and their language embedded in um, our our performance, which is really excited. So when we've been collaborating, we've been listening to their their incredible um, voices and their their own little languages. So um, it's been quite otherworldly to just. To sing with dolphin sounds, uh, you know, obviously specifically the Boronan. So that has really informed us and um, how we actually relate to the music. Um, yeah, it's been um, yeah quite an embodied experience listening to listening to yeah, their 
their callings and their songs. Sounds um, up. So ancient because they're over they're over a million years old. You know, they're very they're very ancient beings, and we can learn a lot from them. And we would have had a, um, a symbiotic relationship with them. Um, you know, we we still do have a connection with them, but um, you know, being uh, Somebody who is um, a Ghana person, a Ghana woman, and we would have lived by the water. We did live by the water, and you know, growing up, we had dolphins coming into the Gippsland Lakes very close to us. So we would have had, you know, more of a um, communication with these beings, and um, something that that's kind of been a big eye opener for me. Like listening to their sounds, I feel like it's almost like a um, a lost communication, lost in translation a little bit. It's like it's been there and it's like we're not we're not communicating with, with with them and and they're very, very intelligent beings. Like their brains are very um very similar to humans as well. So it's just um it's just amazing to, to learn about um our ancient, you know, water family, I guess you could call it in one way. <laughs> so yeah, it's definitely about honouring them and their and their survival and their resilience um, in these really difficult times with uh, with the environmental changes and um, threats that are happening at the moment, especially with our waterways. That sounds uh, incredibly interesting, and uh, yeah, it's going to be wonderfully creative to see how all that comes together in the composition. I'm quite excited to to hear it. Um, just, yeah, just moving um, on to your work more broadly and the way it's developed over the years, um, I believe you're also um, working in the theatre and you yeah. presented your first piece, Woman at La Mama, about six years yeah. ago, yeah. in which you explored your own cultural identity. I just wondered whether yeah. you'd like to share some of what um, you were exploring there yeah, yeah. Um, so that was a piece, like you mentioned, that was um, my first piece of theatre um, that I devised. I, I uh, wrote, um, acted and directed in um, that piece. <clears throat> so really that was about, um, you know, I was 20 years old and I was navigating um, my cultural identity and some of the, I guess, microaggressions that I experienced as a teenager and as a, as a child and um, the diminishing of my identity and the constant um, antagonising and, and questioning around my identity from other people um, at times, which had a, um, a pretty profound effect on me. And uh, really with that piece was um, exploring a situation that happened to me when I was about 15, 16 and, and um, through... Um, this situation, um, it formed into a spoken word piece as well in where I was reclaiming my my cultural identity and not having to justify who I am. Um, and, yeah, it was it was a big stepping stone for myself because, um, because I was delving so deep into um, such a personal matter. Um, and, yeah, so that was um, for the La Mama... Uh, youth on um, winter youth ensemble, I think it was. Um, yeah, all those years ago. Um, platform youth at La Mama. That's right. Platform youth at La Mama, and 
I performed that um, twice a night for two weeks. It was only a 15, 20-minute performance um, in which it was obviously the middle of winter, so I had all this paint on me. <laughs> I had to run through the crowd, um, wash it off in the freezing cold and then go back in and do it all again because um, I essentially put a lot of paint on myself and that was like representing all the colours that I am but also that I... Um, first and foremost, acknowledge my Koori heritage and my, my Gunai and Gunijmara heritage because um, that's that's my that's my connection, that's my um, ancestry, and that's what I feel most connected to living on this continent. So yeah, that was um, that was a really really uh, big stepping stone for myself as a young person. Um, you know, learning to devise my own piece of work and do it twice a night to um, a very intimate audience because I was actually performing that in um, in the dressing room at La Mama Theatre. So if anyone knows La Mama and you know the La Mama dressing room, it's quite small and very intimate. Uh, so that was, yeah, a big stepping stone for myself in, in my theatre career. And in so, June, you're going to be uh, taking one of the lead roles in a Ibiljari uh, theatre company piece, Heart is a Wasteland. So we've got more of you to come in that space? Yes, Ilbidjari Theatre Company has been a um, yeah, long-withstanding uh, relationship with um, Ilbidjari and they've been incredible supports and I'm really grateful that I'm going to be um, playing one of the lead roles in Heart as a Wasteland, which is written by John Harvey uh, and that will be a two-hander theatre show between myself and Nelson Baker, which will be directed by Rachel Mather. So, that will be um, a love. It'll be a love story and a journey um, between two characters, Ray and Dan, and they're on this journey of healing. And Ray is um, in the outback, of, outback Australia, and she's performing her music in in dingy bars and pubs. And and um, on that journey, she meets meets Dan. They go on um, this this experience and this journey together, where they are. They're falling in love, but also um, at a massive crossroads in their life where they have to actually look within themselves about how they can actually heal their trauma and, um, and yeah, and move, and move forward. So it's going to be a really beautiful story. It sounds... Um, and uh, sounds music, um, um, yeah, infused with music and everything like that. So, um, yeah, it'd be really great. Well, I'd love to chat more to you about that, but I, unfortunately we're out of time and I want to leave um, space to uh, play... Uh, some music of yours. So we're going Hello. to hear a, a, a musical composition uh, called Wok Wok. It's a collaboration between Monica Alara and Culture Evolves, Brent Watkins, and it was created during the second stage of lockdown last year for the Fuse Darabin Festival. So we'll say thank you to Monica, uh, our... Thank guest so this morning and if you were interested in getting tickets to see the Gariel event, the opening uh, event of the Yellowcut Willem Naji Festival in St Kilda, Monica will be appearing live tomorrow night, Thursday, March 25th and you can book tickets at www.ywnf.com.au or hop onto the Port Phillip website. Here's Wok Wok.
with salt waters in our blood. We can never be separate from it. No matter how far away we are, it's within us. So patterns within, buried with dust, we've not forgotten our kin. Textures of home, the bark on the limbs of tree beings, whispers on the wind, calling us back as we ain't forgot the layers of country too sacred to be lost. I am the sacred sand. Ancient is my soul. Connect me back, connect me back Healing rain, river flow Yada flow, yada And that was Monica Jasmine Caro in collaboration with Alara, Culture Evolves, Brent Watkins, performing Walk Walk. That was a beautiful song and um, I love, I'm a, I'm a big fan of both of them and yeah, fantastic. Now we've got Beck Charlwood from the Melbourne Comedy Festival joining us to talk a little bit about her set um, and her show, Dirty Girl, this year. Beck, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, my absolute pleasure. Yeah. And so we have, we've, had, we've got a couple of comedians coming on the show um, this season and I, I'm so intrigued whenever I speak to them as to how they actually got into comedy in the first place because I feel everyone's got a different story. And Beck, so how did you find yourself in comedy? Oh, I absolutely fell into comedy. Mm. It was not a choice whatsoever. Um, so I was basically uh, dating this guy. Um, dating is a strong term <laughs> for what it was. Uh, and it was his lifelong dream to be a comedian. So we went along to an open mic night uh, and... Uh, as I was watching, I was like, oh, it looks like fun. That's kind of cool. <laughs> so I just jumped up and gave it a go. And from the first gig, I was like, oh, this is it. This is what I want to do oh, forever. Oh, wow. <laughs> Did you wipe the floor with him a little bit? 
No, I absolutely bombed. Oh, my God, I was awful. I was so bad. Well, he absolutely killed, but he never did it ever again. Oh, really? Interesting. And yeah, did you, yeah. did you come... He's now married with a kid and a house. For him. Good for he him. chose that life. You chose yeah. comedy. Yeah. <laughs> and did you do any other kind of performing arts or anything like that before, before um, yeah, before your, that time on stage? Uh, not really, no. I tried for every single school musical and mm. failed. Um, I don't know if you can tell, but I have the driest voice of all time. Uh, so it never, never went down. I think I yeah, failed every single audition I ever went to. So comedy is definitely the only place I think I belong in the performing arts. <laughs> and um, can you tell us a little bit about your show this year, Dirty Girl? Yes, well, it's honestly, it's eight, 8 in the morning. It's probably a little bit too early to talk about the themes of the show, but I guess you can <laughs> probably kind of pick up what it's the vibe. about. Yeah. Um, very A to B title there. Um, also, also, it's at 6.15, uh, which is too early for a show with R-rated things, uh, <laughs> but that's what it is. And it's also at the West Inn, a hotel way too nice uh, to house the words that I'm going to be saying. <laughs> So what what type of themes about going into yeah without us having to go off air um, yeah, to talk no about that out their morning coffee yeah without somebody <laughs> spitting out their morning coffee what's the what sort of themes do you go into? Well, I talk a lot about love and relationships and and the other physical stuff that goes with relationships and (laughs) the physical things that go wrong with the physical stuff in relationships. Oh, it sounds wild. I I really want to go. I've actually got tickets. I'm super excited to come see you. But um, and I don't know if you remember this, but last year a teammate of ours, Paddy, spoke to you just before COVID sort of ended up we ended up cancelling the the shows and so what was that like last year if you could take us back in time um what was 2020 like for comedians Um, it was a big ego check I'll tell you that much Mm. um (laughs) from you know performing to hundreds of people a night and getting so much attention and also the lead up to Melbourne so busy and exciting and also you have a lot resting on it because it's kind of like you know, schoolies or leavers, whatever yeah. they are, uh, you know, for comedians. So there's a lot resting on it. So when it all fell apart, it was heartbreaking. But also it was a good leveler, you know, I think mentally for me, uh, and this is a very selfish reason, to kind of check in and be like, oh, I am very blessed to, you know, be able to perform as a career and and make people laugh as a job. You know, it's a very, very easy, easy road that I've chosen. Mm. Yeah, but it, I mean, it's important. We remember the people that make us laugh. Um, and I think everybody needed a bit of a laugh in 2020. Um, was there any way during that year where you could kind of still continue to to make some comedy? Oh, a lot of online content. I got heavy into TikTok, yeah. um, which I never thought I'd do. Terrified. I'm only 27, <laughs> but I'm like, that's, that's for the children. Um, so thank God that came along at the right time. And then as well, it, it forced, I think, a lot of us to learn the, the ways of the internet rather than just live performing, which is good because that's kind of like, you know, the future is going to be comedy is absolutely going to be a hybrid of internet content and mm-hmm. live content. So mm-hmm. it was, yeah. A blessing in in disguise. Yeah. And is there a real buzz in the community now in the lead up to the Melbourne Comedy Festival? 
an anxious buzz mm. um, where bees yet to attend the hive, hoping <laughs> that the hive does not have any positive cases. Yeah, um, yeah, I can imagine. And I mean, it must be it must be daunting. Also, if you're a co- if you're a comedian that hasn't been on stage now for over a year, it must almost feel like this is your first time again. Yeah, the first few gigs back were very, very bumpy. You know, you're holding a microphone and then talking and then being in a room with so many people. It was just like a real whiplash moment. I'm yeah. like, oh my god, yeah. it's all it's all coming back to us now. Because I think the audience as well and those things. Because I've been to a couple and everyone's looking around at each other, thinking, "What what do I do now? Is this is this normal?" Like, audiences have an adjustment period as well to come back into into a comedy gig or into a theatre show or onto a music. So, yeah, I think it, I think those first times back for everyone was a bit strange, wouldn't they? Yeah, all well, the first few gigs back were, were very odd and it definitely took an adjustment. I remember my very first gig back, uh, there was a lovely woman in the front row who was just a bit too excited uh, to be out of her house, I would say, and took every single rhetorical question uh, as a direct question to her, which definitely messed with the show. It kind of, look, of all the excitement for the first gig back, I was like, oh, this is really taking the wind out of my sight. But she had a great night, nonetheless. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she had an absolutely fantastic time because you performed to her directly. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, you answered all of her questions too, I'm sure. Yeah, it was a very personalised <laughs> show. But die from uh, Potts Point in Sydney. <laughs> And so your show, Dirty Girl, is on this year at the Melbourne Comedy Festival. And how best can listeners get tickets or come see you? Yeah, or go to the uh, Melbourne Comedy Festival site, uh, look up Dirty Girl. It's the only show called that. Um, If you see any red posters, most likely mine, I've chosen the colour and stuck to it. You can follow me on Instagram for any other uh, gig updates, at Beck Loves Food. Otherwise, yes, 6.15 at the Western. Uh, it's right across from Town Hall from the 25th of March to the 4th of April. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Beck, for joining us today and best of luck with the Comedy Festival. Oh, my absolute pleasure, Alice. I can't wait to see you. Yeah. Thanks very much. See you, Beck. All right, thanks. Bye. Bye. And that was Beck Charwood from the Melbourne Comedy Festival talking about her show this year with Dirty Girl. And I think that's the end of our show now. Was a busy one to say the least. Yeah, we had a few contrasts. Yeah, for sure. And um, Paddy's not here, as we said, so you didn't get to hear his dulcet tones today. But um, hopefully, he'll be with us next week on Wednesday breakfast. Yeah, back and forth next week. And yeah, big thank you to our guests for today. And stay tuned for Stick Together. We'll leave you with a song from Amarillo. This is all I can see. I 
3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events.